1 Corinthians 12. At this point in our study of the Holy Spirit, we have covered every way that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. We have covered his ministry with us, in us, and and upon us. His ministry with us, remember, is he draws us initially to salvation in Christ, and then he continues to draw us closer to Christ each day. His ministry in us is to transform us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus each and every day. And then his ministry upon us is to overflow our life to touch others. That is, those are the three ministries of the Holy Spirit. We've covered those. And, and I think sometimes you go, oh, great. And, and doctrinally, that's wonderful. But we need to understand why it's practically important to understand these things. Remember when Jesus came to the earth? What a fascinating concept, right? That God would become a man. Whenever we talk about the concept of the incarnation, we have to be very careful because, you know, you, you have questions that come up from people. They, like, for example, I, my son asked me a question the other day. He said, you know, Dad, when Jesus was on the earth, he was fully God, right? I'm like, yeah, he's fully man too. I said, yeah. I said, well, so could he actually sin? I said, let's be careful in how we answer that question. Because the idea is that we can answer the question in such a way that either somehow diminishes him as God or diminishes him as man. There are only two groups of beings in this universe, the creator and those who are created. The unique thing is that you have these two groups, but Jesus joined our group. How do you explain that? I don't think it's humanly possible within the confines of our limitations of our mind to fully grasp what that means, that he's fully God and fully man. Oh, I get it. I understand. 100% God, 100% man. But usually when we try to describe it, we describe it in a way where he somehow comes out 97% God or 89% man, you know? At Bible college, you know, we would have this running joke, you know, uh, when someone would rebuke you, you know, it'd be like, well, Jesus is like this. And, and you know, we'd be like, well, I'm not Jesus, you know? And that's fine. But the truth is, Jesus, the struggles he went through, we're just the same things we go through. So you can't diminish his humanity, but you also can't diminish his divinity at all. So we have to be very careful when we try to explain like what this means that Christ was both God and man. But when Jesus became a man and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon him, you know, we have to ask the question of, okay, so what was the purpose of that? You know, did Jesus need the Holy? I mean, he's God Almighty. He doesn't need anything, right? So did he need the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is yes, because he wasn't just God. He was also man. Now, could have it Jesus at any moment as God been completely independent of the Holy Spirit and done whatever, whatever he needed to do? Of course he could have. But we find this unique interaction that occurs in the desert of Jesus' temptation after the Spirit comes upon him and anoints him for ministry we see that the devil comes to him and says, what are you doing starving out here? You're the son of God, man. Turn these rocks into bread. We read that, you know, when he comes up to him in your King James Bible, it says, if, you, if thou be the son of God, turn these stones, like he's you know, somehow critiquing Jesus, you're not really the son of God. The devil knows exactly who Jesus is. The word there is a first class conditional clause, which means it should be translated since. Since you're the son of God, what are you doing starving out here? And Jesus gives such an important answer to understanding the concept of the incarnation. 
He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of, proceeds out of the mouth of God. I'm not here to whoop you as a son of God. I'm here to whoop you as man. And so Jesus did it as a man needs to do it, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So even though Jesus was fully God and could have done it as the son of God, he lived life as you and I need to live it in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus' life during those three years of ministry, we know that he came for the purpose of the cross, right? But there's a whole three-year span in between the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the cross. And during that time of ministry, wouldn't you say that Jesus had a pretty big impact upon the lives of people? Yeah, I would say so. Thousands of lives were changed. Jesus did that by being led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to live life as God wants us to, we need all of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We can't ever go out in our own energy, our own flesh. You know, a few weeks ago before I left, we studied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that was kind of that final culmination of that idea of him overflowing us to supernaturally touch the people around us. And we studied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We looked through the scriptures and we Many scriptures explain that supernatural things occurred when believers experienced that coming upon ministry of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it was a gift of prophecy. Sometimes it was a gift of tongues. Sometimes someone was healed. Sometimes it was the gift of miracles. Which means that if we want to complete our study of the Holy Spirit, we have one more topic to talk about, his gifts his supernatural gifts. And Paul introduces this topic to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You may note your Bible might have gifts in italics. That's because the word gifts is not there. It means now concerning the spiritual things or literally the things of the spirit. I want to talk to you about the things of the spirit right now. One uh, New Testament commentator said it this way, these spirituals, these spiritual things are the forms of action which proceed from the spirit and reveal his agency in the life of the church. I'm gonna say that again. It is the forms of action which proceed from the spirit and reveal his agency in the life of the church. If you guys come here on a Sunday morning or a midweek Bible study or a fellowship of some kind, or you're hanging out with other believers and there is no form of action which proceeds from the spirit and reveals his agency in the life of the church, we are accomplishing nothing. If it is not the power of the Holy Spirit that's working right now, when I'm teaching, I am wasting your time because I have nothing eternal to give to you. I have no gift to impart to you that was not given to me. So Paul says, listen, I want to talk to you about this dynamic that makes the church different than any other type of entity in the world. We are not just a building where religious things happen. We are a living organism, the body of Christ, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do supernatural things in the world. Think about it for a moment. You're married. How on earth are you going to love your wife like Christ of the church or submit to that man? You better have the Holy Spirit because otherwise people aren't going to see anything different in your marriage. They're not going to see anything different in your parenting. They're not going to see anything different in your Christian behavior at work. 
I think some of the most convicting moments in my life is when, you know, I'll act in a certain way toward my kids or my wife or another person, and that just gentle, quiet, convicting Holy Spirit says to me, Will, you're acting just like the world. We can have our schools where we teach our kids all the biblical principles. We can make sure they understand until they're blue in the face, we're blue in the face, you know, of, of this is what the Bible says. But if they're not actually seeing it lived out in our lives, if people aren't seeing something different, something supernatural, something otherworldly, then it's just more dead religion. Paul says, these things are operating in the, in the church right now, and I don't want you to be ignorant about them. And the phrase there, I would not, means I do not ever desire you to be ignorant. It means to be unaware or fail to understand or to lack the capacity to use the spiritual gifts. He says, I don't want that to be the case. I don't ever want that to be the case. I want you to know what to do. When it comes to the topic of the supernatural work of the Spirit in the church, the answer is never to say, well, that's a difficult topic. We shouldn't touch that. Or, you know, that's a topic for a different time. Let's not do that now. God inspired Paul to write this letter to the Corinthians for their benefit, but we have it in our Bible now because it's for our benefit and our application. That means that to be a fully mature believer, we need to understand. We cannot afford to be ignorant about what the Bible says about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ. We need to know how to apply that understanding to our daily Christian lives, just like we need to understand the theology in Romans. We need to understand the Gospels. We need to understand end time stuff. We need to understand all these things because as Paul told Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God that you and I might be mature believers, amen? So we need to understand this and we can understand this. Now, Paul starts this journey of explaining and, you know, basically fixing their ignorance on spiritual things, he says, by establishing a couple ground rules first. He says here in verses two and three, establishes two foundational rules for this topic. He says, number one, he says, you know, you guys know your old lives. You know that you were Gentiles carried away under these dumb idols, even as you were led. Now, we could read that and we kind of laugh, like when I said that, those idols are dumb. Yeah, why would anybody worship an idol? He's not talking about how idols are dumb, even though they are. He's talking about how they're mute. They don't speak. They have nothing. He says, you would go to these, you go to, go to this temple and you go consult some priestess or some prophetess and to get an oracle from, from the gods. And he goes, they say nothing to you. They have no word. They have nothing to say. They're dead. They're dumb. They're mute. You remember how that was before? It was all man-created stuff. Paul's first ground rule, if we're going to understand spiritual gifts, is we must reject man-made ideas about the supernatural. We are not going to explain the gifts of the Holy Spirit because, well, this happened at this church and this guy said this. No. We're going to reject what the world says about hocus pocus, magic, supernatural things, superstition. None of this is that. We are not going to define what the spiritual gifts are by how the world defines supernatural things. Now, that cuts both ways, by the way. For example, 
I have heard very frequently, you know, people, and I, I, I'm so bad. I'm, I'm such a bad pastor. People will come to me and they're all excited. Like, Pastor Bill, did you see this new documentary? It explains how when Joshua, you know, parted the water, explains how the weather patterns were like this and the wind blew and how exactly it would have happened right at that time. It would have stopped up the Jordan River and that's why it happened. And I'm just like, oh, cool. And they're like, this is groundbreaking. And I'm like, God created the heavens and the earth. He could stop up the water. I didn't need a documentary to tell me he could do that. So I'm sorry I'm not excited. I just don't feel like I need a human scientific explanation for the supernatural. So if you like your documentaries, it's cool. Just don't expect me to get all excited about it. Because I don't tend to, to look for that. I just don't have a problem with it, you know? He's like, you really believe that, you know, Jonah got swallowed by a big fish? I'm like, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm saved. Yeah, I do. I don't think it's a problem. You've been with me long enough, you've probably tell this joke for me, but there was a student at school and he was learned at Sunday, you know, about how the, the you know, God parted the Red Sea and, and you know, and, and, and he saved the Israelites and drowned the Egyptians and, and through the Red Sea and, and um, he's telling everybody at the class and the teacher's getting real annoying, you know, this guy's proselytizing, whatever, and sends him to the principal's office and the principal sits down and he goes, listen, you can't be doing this and stuff. He's like, yeah, but God did this miracle and everything. And the principal says, miracles don't exist, kid. You know, the, 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 you don't, what you don't know about this, your teacher, Sunday school teacher didn't tell you, he said that the Red Sea is actually in the Bible, it's called the Sea of Reeds. And the Sea of Reeds is only like an, like an inch deep. And the kid goes, really? He goes, yeah. So there's no miracle. God didn't part the sea and anything like that. So you need to quit telling everybody this and just do school. The kid's like, really? None of that? He goes, no. And he says, so there's only an inch of water? Yeah. All right. The kid gets up, he runs out of class. He goes, guys, 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 let me tell you this amazing thing. God did such a miraculous thing. He drowned the entire Egyptian army in only an inch of water. Perspective. So why are you bringing this up? Because like I'll hear explanations on the gift of tongues and there'll be, the explanation is, well, the gift of tongues is when God gives someone the ability to learn another language to go be a missionary. That is not biblical. That's a human made idea. Never do you see that in the New Testament. Never. Never do you see, in fact, never do you see the gift of tongues being people speaking to other people. Never. It's always prayer or praise to God. Always. So we're not going to define these things by the world. Whether it's supernatural weird hocus pocus, you know, or it's going to be logic and reason and whatever. We're, going to, we're not going to have a worldly, idolatrous, paganistic idea of these things. That's our first rule. Our second rule is we must acknowledge that the whole, everything the Holy Spirit does will always line up with what the Holy Spirit has already given us in his word. He says in verse three, wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Okay, when, when Benny Hinn came out and he said, hey guys, I've got a word from the Lord. I've got a word from the Lord. There's actually, each member of the Trinity is its own Trinity. There's actually nine gods. Yeah, I can look at that and go, you're a heretic. I reject that because the scriptures tell me there's one God and he's manifest in three persons, not nine. 
I don't care what anointing you think you had, that's not of the Lord. That's not the Holy Spirit. You, I can't, if I get up here and go, listen, guys, here's the truth. Jesus is accursed. You know, the Lord just spoke it to me. We're not going to follow Jesus anymore. We're just going to go with God the Father. That's where we're going from now. You can know that's not the Holy Spirit. That's Will Ramirez. That's the flesh. That's the enemy. We reject that. Any explanation of a gift of the Holy Spirit that does not line up in its usage or its explanation of how it works that doesn't line up with Scripture is rejected. We will not, we will not entertain it. And so, like, we're not going to go beyond what the Scriptures say. I know that sometimes this upsets people, but, like, we're not going to add to the Word of God. There is no such gifting as being slain in the Spirit. There's nothing in the Scripture about that. Nowhere. All right? And listen, I come from a Pentecostal background. I saw plenty of it. All right? I, got, I know all the teachings, so don't, don't think you're going to be like, oh, boy, he's never heard the Bible teaching on this before. I've heard all the Bible teaching. It's not Bible teaching. It's teaching. It's not Bible teaching, though. We don't believe in being drunk in the Spirit because there's no such thing in the Scripture. There are nine gifts mentioned here, very specific gifts. We're going to go over them and examine what the Scripture says about them. We're not going to go beyond that. You're not going to, you know, give, okay, let's, let me show you how when the Holy Spirit grips you, you know, you start doing this. We're not, we're not going to do that, okay? I, <laughs> somebody let him off his chain. <laughs> somebody, somebody go lock him back up again. I remember we had the whole, you know, the whole Bethel movement, you know, got really big. Everybody's talking about this great move of God going over there. I remember I saw a video of a woman, she's doing that, and she's hissing while she's doing it, saying, this is the Lord. And I'm like, that looks like a snake. And so I started doing some research, and over in India, they have this thing called Kundalini. And if you play a video of a Kundalini worship service, it looks just like what they're doing over at Bethel. <clears throat> Not in the Word. Nowhere in the Word. So as we begin this journey into a topic that has been very divisive and very misunderstood by the church, we start with these two foundations. Number one, we will not get our definitions or our practice by looking at the supernatural claims of religion, which sadly includes some claims that some churches make. And number two, we will get our definitions and our practice by never ever deviating from the instructions in God's word. That's where we're gonna get it from. So, anything outside of that is no-no. You say, well, I had this experience. So, let me throw another bomb out there. Christians can't be demon-possessed. Christians don't get demons cast out of them, okay? You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. It says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you have God who is light living inside of you, you can't have an unclean spirit inside of you, okay? I grew up, though, in a church environment that taught that you could be, have a demon inside of you. And there was, 
what they call deliverance ministry where they're constantly casting out. You have a demon of lust. You have a demon of whatever. I had a demon of chicken cast out of me. I've had all sorts of things, you know? Of course, then the worst thing is when you got Leviathan in you, you know? Or Jezebel. Jezebel, if you're a girl, the last thing you want to hear is you got a spirit of Jezebel. If you're a guy, spirit of Leviathan. Now then you're just the worst, you know? Somebody get the hook. I was so sad. I was driving up to the Bible College, Bible Training Institute that they have up there. It's been there for 20 plus years. Young men come through there and they get taught the word of God and they understand what it's about and they go out and they give it to people. It's so precious. On the way up though, see signs everywhere. Fire conference, power conference, victory conference, overcome. And you see these guys are just decked out. They're dressed nice and everything is just, it's all about the show. And, and that's kind of how church is over there where it just, they go from like meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting looking for God. I remember what that was like. I remember, I remember living life and having no solid ground under my feet. We're all different. We react differently to this. Some of us, we just kind of grab life by the horns. Some of us, we just dive into some hobby. <clears throat> and then some of us are like me. And you wonder if life is even worth living. And you got no, no place to put your feet. So we're driving up and it's just seeing it at every corner and your heart just breaks. Jesus came that we might have life and that more abundantly. Please to put our feet upon the solid ground no matter how much things are spinning around us. No matter how much the life is seeking to crush us. We get this foundation from here where we learn about him. So that's why we're gonna get all of our definitions and practice from this. I didn't need demons cast out of me as a young child who was struggling with life and didn't have anywhere to put his feet. I needed the word. I needed discipleship. I needed, <clears throat> I needed truth. I need grace. I need to understand God's love. I don't understand what God wanted of me. <clears throat> All those things come from here. So on this topic, that's why we get it from here. Now, in verse four, he starts diving in. He's got to establish these ground rules. Don't watch be ignorant, so let's, let's start learning. He says, now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which works all 
in all. Here we see that each member of the Trinity has special gifts for us, special blessings for us. And it starts with the Holy Spirit. It says, now there are diversities of gifts, but it's the same Spirit. The word diversities here means there are distributions or apportionings. In other words, the Holy Spirit distributes and apportions gifts. We see down in verse 11, just as he wishes. We'll get to that next week because there's nowhere I'm getting anywhere near that this morning. But he does it as he wishes. We'll get more to that later. But the concept is, is what is he dispersing and distributing and apportioning? It is gifts. Now, this is that Greek word charisma, where you maybe have heard the charismatic movement that emphasizes the gifts of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people don't understand the charismatic movement. In fact, they like to lump everybody that gets involved in any type of supernatural emphasis into the charismatic movement. The history of the charismatic movement is actually preceded by the Pentecostal movement. In the early 1900s, you had what they would call the first wave of the the Holy Spirit. And it was the Pentecostal movement. Uh, You had uh, churches that began to re-emphasize the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And so they, they focused on this. In fact, still today, if you go to a Pentecostal church, you may not see a lot of the other stuff that you see in charismatic churches, but they have a heavy emphasis upon the baptism of the Holy Spirit and on speaking in tongues. Around the 40s, 50s, you had what's called, they call the second wave of the Holy Spirit. I don't think, there's no waves of the Holy Spirit. I'm just telling you how they describe it. That's called the charismatic movement. And that's where they started to desire to see words of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, things like this, where they started to say, hey, it's more than just the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And really, when you look at the Pentecostal movement, you look at the charismatic movement, for the most part, they were very Bible-based. Some things got weird, but generally speaking, both of those movements tended to be very Bible-based. Then you had in the 70s, 80s, you had the third, what they call the third wave of the Holy Spirit, which is when it got crazy. And that was called the signs and wonders movement. And that's when it just, it all went berserk. It's when it went beyond the gifts of the Holy Spirit and they, their mantra was kind of this, and you shall do greater things than these. And so now we've got people's gold dust coming from the ceiling and, and, and you've got people knocked over in, in the spirit and, and you've got demons being cast out of Christians and all sorts of crazy things and money multiplying and you know, whatever that you see now tends to be in these charismatic environments. They all tend to be that way these days and we lump them that way, but it was not always the case. People freak out when I tell them, well, Calvary Chapel has its roots in the Pentecostal movement. You know, it's like, hide the women and children, you know? Pentecostal movement wasn't a bad thing. There were some bad things that happened in it, but it wasn't a bad thing. Church needed to re-emphasize the baptism of the Holy Spirit again. We had gotten so caught up in our institutions and our seminaries and, and doing stuff in the flesh and the machinery that we weren't out preaching the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We do need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You just don't need all the weirdness that came afterwards. So that's where this idea comes from of charisma. Paul will use the word charismata sometimes. Down in verse uh, 9 when it says the gifts of healing, that's the word charismata. And to understand what this word charisma means, we need to break it down into its parts. Its root word of, of it is the word charis, which is usually translated grace in our Bible. You know, for Jesus came full of grace and truth. That's charis. Grace is God's unmerited favor lavished upon the infinitely ill-deserving. That is God's grace to us. Now, when you take that word charis, that means grace, and you add the word ma to it, charisma, the word ma personalizes a word. 
which changes the meaning to be grace to you or personalized grace, which is why it's usually translated gift. You know, if, I, if, you say, if you were to say, you know, uh, about me, oh, Will's a gracious person, that's different than saying, well, Will gave me a gift, right? That's a personalized grace. I, was, I did something nice for you, um, or you did something nice for me. That, that, that's personalized. So charisma, ta just makes the word plural. So charisma ta means personal graces or personal gifts that are unmerited from God. And that's what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are. They are personalized grace to you. In other words, the Lord looks upon you and he says, I just want to give this gift to you for the blessing of my my church. It's personal. I want to use you. It's not just what God wants to use us generally, but I want to use you right now to be a blessing in this other person's life. Now, because the very root of this idea is grace, it means these gifts are not earned things. Like, you don't get a gift because you're so holy or you're so spiritual. You know, they're not earned things. That's why we must never confuse gifting for spirituality. You know, we, you hear a great speaker or someone who's sharing the gospel and impacting lives. You go, wow, what an anointing. How many of you guys saw the Jesus Revolution movie? Lonnie's weird, right? Like he is. I, I spent, I spent uh, at the conference I taught at in Ghana, two of the guys who, who I was teaching with worked at Costa Mesa when Lonnie was there. He, he's even weirder than I thought he was. And one of the things they were talking about is just so weird. He had such an incredible anointing, but he was such a not godly man. How is that possible? Because it's not an earned thing. The gifts of God, the Bible says the gifts of God are without repentance. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God doesn't take it away just because you're not being mature as a believer because it was never earned in the first place. So we can never equate gifting with spirituality. So I have some of my country say, I have a great gifting from God. I've got this anointing from God. I'm like, it's great. Get your character to catch up with it because it's nowhere near. All of us need to cultivate our character so that we can use God's gifts for his glory. It always, I don't get it when someone's proud about their gift. I, I, I got saved in a Pentecostal church and I didn't know what was going on at times. You know, people just get up and start Ilio Shundai and who stole my Hyundai until my bow tie, you know, and I didn't know what was going on. I, th- I thought, oh, wow, is that person speaking Hebrew? Maybe they're, they're reading a scripture in Hebrew. Maybe we have some Jewish believers here. I didn't know what was going on. Well, I know this. It was the same woman every week, and man, she looked really proud of what she was doing every week. And I've seen that way too much. I've got this gift. Some of the most difficult days for me, just being honest with you, of ministry, are the days after I've, the days of the afternoon or the night or the day after I've sensed a really powerful anointing from God in my life. Because there is such a dichotomy between what God did through me and who I am. Like that does not seem to match up at all, God. Like why, why would you use someone like me 
You know what kind of week I had. You know where my mind was at at times. You know how I'm struggling right now. Why would you do that? Being used of God should be something that should really humble us. I've, 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 I've never understood the idea of being proud or boastful or, you know, like, oh, I just spoke in tongues. I'm like, you have no clue what you just said. Like, what is, what is being pride to be prideful about? There should be a humility. There should be a sense of, oh, God, I hope this is you. <laughs> and then you speak, and Lord, somebody better interpret, or I'm in trouble. There should be a humility about it because it's never earned. God didn't give it to you because you deserved it or you earned it or you're so spiritual. You're better than someone else. God picked me and someone else rather than someone else. But there's another side to that too. We must also never think that we need to attain some level of spirituality to receive a gift from the Holy Spirit. God could never use me that way. Why? Why not? Why wouldn't he use you that way? Well, I'm not you. So, are you in Christ? That means you got the same qualification I do or anybody else does. James says you have not because you ask not. First time I ever heard the gifts of the Spirit taught through, we were encouraged to go home and pray for every one of them. And I did. It was kind of cool to see how God gave me a couple of gifts that I maybe wouldn't have expected. There's some gifts I wanted, he just said no. But I remember I prayed specifically for the gift of showing mercy because not, I'm not by nature a merciful person. I'm a black and white, judge, jury, and executioner type of person. But I knew that, God, you can't, I can't be a good shepherd, a good, good pastor if I'm not merciful to people. So pray, Lord, give me the gift of showing mercy. And something happened when I prayed that. I don't know how to explain it. Something happened from that point in time where I just, it seemed like, a, like just an unnatural empathy when people were struggling. Where rather before me, I would have been like, well, you did this and this. That's what happens. That my heart just went out to him. And I just wanted to give him a hug. I just wanted to come alongside and be like, hey, you're not alone. We're going to get through this. So just ask. You and I don't earn the right to these gifts. The Holy Spirit gives them freely to whom he pleases. So we receive them simply by asking. Now, these gifts from the Holy Spirit are listed in verses 8 through 10, and we'll start that next week because we're going to be out of time in just a few minutes. But that's not the only gifts we receive from the Trinity. We also get gifts from Jesus. Verse 5, there are differences of administrations, but it's the same Lord. Now, this word administrations is different than the word gifts. This is not personalized grace. The word administrations here means set roles or positions that a believer would serve in. And we find these set roles and positions in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has just explained the unity we have, the basis of our unity in Christ. There's one God, one Father of us all, right? You know, there's one truth, you know, one body, one spirit, one faith, all that kind of stuff, one baptism. And then he says in verse 7, but even though we're all united, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We all have a part to play in the body of Christ. We all have a unique gifting from God. Now, 
in verse 11, it tells us that Jesus gave some these roles. He gave some these roles to the church. He gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, these are set roles, offices within the church, designed for the specific purpose of edifying the body of Christ so they can be equipped to step into the roles God's given to them to use their gifts, which we'll get to in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 12, which means that not everyone has a set role or position in the church. Now, these set roles here are four, not five. Some of your Bibles might separate pastor, teacher, but it's all one word in the original. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teacher. Today, we throw the word pastor around way too loosely. You go to some church websites, and like, you know, you go through the staffing, and it's like, here's our maintenance pastor. Like, what do you mean a maintenance pastor? Does he teach the maintenance people? Well, no, he's just the guy with the keys. Well, then he's not a pastor. We use that word basically now interchangeably for leader um, in churches today. That's not good, though, because words mean things. Can't just change them. <clears throat> so a pastor is a teacher. If you're not teaching, you're not a pastor. Now, you don't need to be doing pulpit teaching to be a pastor. Uh, you could be doing maybe one-on-one discipleship. That's your gifting. And there, there are different ways that God uses those offices. Maybe you're a counselor. That's fine. But if you're not doing any Bible teaching, you're not a pastor. You know? I go to churches sometimes, like, man, don't we have such an anointed pastor? I was like, you don't have an anointed pastor. You have a very anointed motivational speaker. Because he didn't do any teaching. The role of a pastor is to feed the flock of God. Teach the Bible. Evangelists, to, to teach and equip the body of Christ to share their faith. To be an example of how to share your faith. Now, at one point in time, there were apostles and prophets. Well, they do not exist anymore, and I'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> I, I told everyone this morning, I said, I, I, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'm going to offend every single person this morning that has a role, that has a view that's not biblical. Now, there are some churches that are called fivefold ministry churches. They're already off because there's not five ministries here. There's only four. And they teach, well, everybody has one of these. No, everyone does not have one of these. Because if everyone were a pastor, an evangelist, or an apostle, or a prophet, then who are the saints being edified? Most of us are called to a set position in the workforce outside the church where we can be salt and light. That's what most of us are called to. But Jesus gives these people to the church to build them up so they can do that. And I'm so grateful for the leaders God has put into my life that helped shape me into what he wants me to be, aren't you? Well, I mentioned earlier, two of these gifts were temporary, apostles and prophets. I don't want to go into it in too much detail, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, tells us very clearly that the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. I'm not a construction expert, but I know this, that when you build a foundation, you don't keep building the foundation, you build on top of the foundation. The apostles and prophets gave to us the word of God. They gave the foundation to us. They laid it for us. It's finished. It's complete. We don't have any need for apostles and prophets anymore. And that doesn't mean that people might have apostolic type ministries where, like I think a lot of missionary organizations, they oversee large groups of churches and help them to get established. What I was doing at the Bible college was a part of that. It was founded by a Calvary Chapel out in California, and now it's run by Calvary Chapel Vero Beach, and they kind of spearhead the work that's going on there in Ghana. But they don't have any authority. They can't fire pastors, okay? 
So the apostolic authority is not there, even though it has similar ideas where Paul would go around and plant churches and check up on them. Prophets, you know, we don't have the office of prophet. There's nobody that come here today and say, Will, you're not teaching today because I got a word from the Lord. If you show up here and you say, Will, you're not teaching today, I've got a word from the Lord, I'm going to introduce to you people who have things in their ears. Come talk to our security team. They'll help you. No, there is no one who has authority above the teaching ministry of the word of God in our church. Whether that's me or some other pastor or someone we bring in who's gonna teach you the Bible. That has the highest authority now in the church. But back in the day, if a prophet showed up, it didn't matter if you were scheduled to teach that day, Pastor Will, prophet showed up and said, we're gonna listen to the prophet. Because they were still imparting the scriptures to people. We don't need that anymore. Now, is the gift of prophecy still in existence? Yes, but that's different than the office of a prophet. Well, the last set of gifts we have here, and I'm out of time, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 6, is the gifts from God, our wonderful Father, our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> it says, and there are diversities of operations. So we have gifts, administrations, and now operations, but it is the same God which works all in all. There are varieties and divisions, diversities of that which is done in the church, but it's the same God who is working all those gifts in every individual. I don't have time to go into all this today, but read Romans chapter 12, verses three through eight, lists a bunch of gifts, teaching, exhortation, showing mercy, administration, leading, leadership, service, um, uh, prophecy. Uh, you go to First Peter chapter four, it talks about hospitality. You have all these gifts that are listed in various places in the scriptures, helps. These are ministries that are necessary for the body of Christ and the Father has given to, if you're a believer here today, you have at least one of those gifts. You probably have multiple ones and you can ask for more. That's the cool part. God has given gifts to you that our church needs not necessarily for what goes on on Sunday morning because what goes on on Sunday morning is very structured. But the church is not Sunday morning. I've been lobbing bombs all morning, but here's another one. If all you're doing is coming on Sunday morning, you're getting good stuff, but that's not enough. That is not what Christianity is about. You need interaction with other believers because no matter how wonderful I may or may not be, I do not have all the gifts. I do not have all the gifts to impart to you. You have need of other people's giftings, and so you need to interact with other people. I am so thankful. I can't tell you how many times that some of you have invited me and Beverly over, and you use your gift of hospitality. You treat us to a nice dinner, wonderful fellowship, and we walk away. We feel so loved. We feel so encouraged. I can't tell you how many times we've had a dinner like that where I'd been discouraged that week or whatever, and I look over at Bev, and I'm just like, God is so good. God is so good. And you just want to keep going. That's just as important as what I'm doing right now, operating hopefully in the gift of teaching and the gift of prophecy. It's just as important. So we need you, and you need each other. We need your giftings. We need to be functioning and operating together. This is where I started the whole sermon, the whole idea about when we get together, if there is no reality of the Holy Spirit in our interactions, whether it's a Bible study or a fellowship group, or you're just having coffee with somebody, if there is no supernatural thing going on, then we have wasted our time. Because what happens when Jesus is around and his spirit is working, 
So you go and you have coffee with that individual and maybe the way your week would have went because maybe they, they, they spoke into your life or they encouraged you or they exhorted you, your week would have been like this and now it's gonna be like this. Because you interacted with someone else that God has placed in your life and gave them a gift that you need and you needed it in that moment. This is where body ministry truly occurs. We do this on Sunday morning and Sunday night. We have our Bible studies. We, we have our meetings and they have structure to them. But ultimately, where body ministry occurs is when you're using your gifts in just everyday life, interacting with other believers. So you, you need more than Sunday morning. Who are you spending time with? What other believers are you interacting with? I mean, I'm not trying to beat you up. But if your marriage is struggling, your walk with Jesus is struggling, your family's struggling, you know, your finances are struggling, all these things are struggling, you need to ask the question of, am I just maybe going at this alone? Maybe that's why. My whole life, my whole life, God has kept me on very short leash we sing that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's me. That's me. He knows if I, I just lets me out of his sight too long, I'll run into traffic. I'm so grateful for that love that keeps me close. There have been very few moments in my life where I've been alone. God has so often sent other believers to me. So, maybe you think to yourself, why isn't he sending them to me? I don't know. But maybe that means you need to go find them. Maybe you're, maybe you're stronger than I am. For me, he's like, Will's just not gonna do it. But either way, you can't go it alone. We need each other. You need the giftings that other people have and they need the things you have. Let's stand. Well, I don't know what that was. But let's pray. Lord, thanks. Thanks for just loving us. Thank you that your, your spirit is alive and real, that he's in us, that he's here in our midst today, and that you're working in us and you desire to work through us. And so Lord, we don't want to be those who go alone or go in the flesh. We don't wanna pick up ideas from the world as it concerns these things. And Lord, I pray for anyone maybe today who I, I, I stepped on maybe their history, maybe their, their experience, church experience. Lord, you remind them that even as you reminded me coming through my own error that you met me because you loved me, not because what my church was doing was right. Lord, that you're just gracious and you're just good. And when you see us hurting, even maybe if we're not in the perfect situation, you still just want to reach us. Lord, let that be the truth that settles in our hearts today so that we won't resist what you want to teach us about the proper operation of your gifts of your spirit. 
And then, Lord, as it concerns the gifts that you've given to us, Lord, help us to get outside of ourselves, to stop being so busy with things that don't weigh into eternity, but to interact with one another, to use our gifts, and then to have others' gifts be a blessing to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.